The following message is from the Church at Greer Station. For more information, visit tcgreerstation.com. At the center of the Christian faith sits a paradox. The fact that we worship a crucified king. The fact that we sing of a king who bleeds. We sing of our king's blood. We relish our king's death. We wear and we get tattooed and we adorn our buildings with the instrument of his betrayal and murder. It's all a little bit bizarre if you're unfamiliar with the Christian story. The crucified king. A few years back, I was reading a book that featured this image in it. Have it up on the screen. This is a carving that was found in a prison. It was carved around, somewhere around 100 AD. This is a carving, one prisoner carved this in the, the prison wall to mock another prisoner who was a Christian. And the caption says, kind of scribbled there in those letters, Alexamenos worships his God. And you see how he's depicted Jesus on the cross as a donkey. This helps illustrate for us how people who don't quite have the eyes to see the faith, see the faith. Alexamenos worships his God. Back then, it was completely inconceivable that somebody would say that their king was crucified, that their king, the one that they worship, was put to death in this way. A crucified king, that's who we serve, that's who we worship, that's who we love, that's who we adore. And it's a bit bizarre. An ancient Christian thinker, Augustine, said this, the Lord has established his sovereignty from a tree. Who is it who fights with wood? Christ. From his cross, he has conquered kings. Highlights for us the paradox that sits at the center of our faith, the fact that this king was crucified and somehow achieved victory through death. Not only, not, not a normal death, not like a car wreck on 85, not a freak accident dropping a toaster in a, in a, in a bathtub, but a crucifixion, an ignoble, brutal death. Not a king's death, and most certainly not a king's victory, and yet we sing and celebrate the crucified king week after week after week. So how can this be? How can Jesus be a king and also be a crucified king? What is the meaning of his crucifixion, and how is it even a coherent idea for us to say that he is Lord over everything? How does this make any kind of sense? Now tonight, we're going we're gonna to look at the, the scripture that was just read by, by Miss Beth. We're going to begin a series called The Crucified King that takes a look at the final chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 26 through 28. This is going to conclude our years-long study, our years-long walk through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Matthew is, as we read through these, these chapters in the coming weeks, what we'll see is Matthew is not oblivious to the seeming contradiction and ironies at play here, that the king is a crucified king. In fact, he brilliantly makes full use of these ironies and seeming contra- contradictions over and over again in these final chapters as he unveils for his reader how Christ, the, the long-awaited, anointed Messiah, the King of the Jews, how he could achieve victory through his death, even death on a cross, and how that crucified king then upends and overturns our values and calls us to live a life patterned after his own. Now, the evening, this evening, again, the passage that was just read, Sometimes when I, when I go to teach a passage, I feel like anything I say is just going to detract from what the passage is already doing. This is one such passage for me. It is just so beautiful, but so heartbreaking at the same time. It is just an amazing story here in the scriptures. 
what we see as we look in at chapter 26, verse 1, is that Jesus' ministry is going to shift into its final form, we might say. This final form where Jesus is anointed for his burial. We're going to look again at this story, and we're going to notice an interesting contrast Matthew makes between two specific characters, and then he's going to push us towards a question that I hope has some real ump for us tonight as we consider this passage. Matthew 26, verse 1. Let's read. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So the Gospel of Matthew, we've seen over the last several years and months, is divided up into these five big discourses, these these five large teaching chunks that Jesus offers. And at the end of each teaching chunk, Matthew will offer some kind of summary statement. When Jesus had finished saying these things, Jesus went and did this. What's different about 26 verse 1 is it says, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Matthew is sort of holding out for us that Jesus is done teaching. Jesus is done with the teaching and Jesus is moving to the action that his whole life had been driving towards up to this point. After these sayings, it says, Jesus tells his followers, after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus says that he is about to be delivered up because the Passover is coming. And here, here's our, one, of, one of our first ironies we see in this section. These chapters are so rich with it, it feels like it's every other word. But Passover was the time of year where Jews from all over the world would make a pilgrimage to the city of Jerusalem and they would celebrate God delivering their ancestors by the blood of a lamb. And Jesus says, after two days, the Passover is coming. And Jesus isn't just saying that the Passover celebration is coming, but the Passover, the fullness of what the Passover has always intended to mean is coming. I'm about to be handed over to the authorities, Jesus says. The Passover is coming in more ways ways than one. And he says, speaking of himself, that the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. Now, frequently, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. And it's, it might be tempted to read that as just kind of an cumbersome way of saying a human, that son of man, he's a human. But actually, that phrase comes from the prophet Daniel. It was super common in the second temple period when Jesus was teaching. And it's actually a statement of divine authority. Daniel prophesied about a son of man who would come and who would receive a kingdom and might and glory and power from the ancient of days. And Jesus, picking up on this language from Daniel, speaks of himself as that son of man. In other words, he's referring to himself as the long-awaited king. He says that the Son of Man, the long-awaited king, is going to be delivered up, ultimately to be crucified. Now, when you see that word delivered up, don't think deliver in the same way that you would deliver the mail or deliver the goods, whatever that means. Don't think like that. Rather, this word is probably more properly translated as something like betrayed. This word deliver here carries treacherous and malicious undertones. In fact, in verses 15 and 16, it is translated as betrayed. Jesus says, in a few days, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, delivered up to crucifixion. Now, what's interesting is you read through these next few chapters, the, the word, that phrase there, or a combination of these words, delivered, is going to be used nearly 15 times in these chapters. Nearly 15 times it's going to talk about Jesus being delivered here and delivered there and delivered here as if Jesus is passively being handed back and forth by the authorities. And the temptation might be to read this sort of ongoing delivering as if things have spiraled, spiraled out of control for Jesus, as if Jesus said a little bit too much in some of his discourses. He lost control of the ship, and now he's got to pay the piper for his actions. 
But these two verses actually make very clear what's happening. The crucified king is king even over his, crucified, his crucifixion. Jesus is deliberately stepping into his betrayal and murder. This has always been the plan. Verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. All right, so the, the picture we have here is the religious leaders huddled together, conspiring together, plotting how they can sneakily and slyly arrest Jesus. And again, there's just delicious irony all over this passage. Because they think they're the ones that have been doing the plotting. They think they're the ones who are doing the scheming. But actually, the one who's been orchestrating this all along is the one who is about to be delivered up. Jesus willingly offers himself, willingly offers himself to be the crucified king. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, nobody takes my life, I give my life. Nonetheless, it's almost comical how these religious leaders are portrayed. They're gathered together, raging, plotting against the Lord and his anointed. But it says that they want to behave stealthily because this is a crowded city and the people like Jesus. Remember, this is the time of the Passover, so there's thousands and thousands of people who have flocked to the city. And understandably, they don't want to cause a riot. If they, if they do something to Jesus very publicly, it might cause a riot. And if you cause a riot, that's going to draw Rome's attention and Rome is, Rome is going to come bring the boom. So they conclude, we need some kind of end, some kind of angle, some way of getting to Jesus without being seen, almost as if we need someone on the inside, someone on the inside who can deliver Jesus to us. More on that in a second. Then in verse 6, Matthew offers kind of an interesting flashback, verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Now, it's actually very likely that this event took place the week prior uh, to what's happening there in verses 1 through 5, before Palm Sunday, before Jesus' triumphal entry into the city. But remember that the Gospels aren't biographies in the same way that we kind of think about bio biographies, like detailed journalistic accounts of all of the different aspects of Jesus' life. Oftentimes, the gospel writers will organize things thematically to make a point, or in this case, to draw a contrast. Again, if you see, if you see like a, a flashback in a book or a movie, oftentimes it's to kind of make a point about a particular character or particular event. We'll see what Matthew is up to in a second. But we're told that Jesus is dining at the house of a former leper, which is itself a huge deal. It says something about Jesus' grace. And it's kind of like, we understand why the crowds would be upset if they captured Jesus in public, because Jesus does things like visits the house of a former leper. It says that he's reclining at table. They, they would, and, and this time, they would sit around the table, typically on the floor on pillows, and they would just kind of enjoy mealtimes over a long period of time. The courses would be served in waves, and so Jesus is just sort of, sort of being with and, and enjoying the company of Simon the leper and those that are in his house. Over several hours, this would be the case. And we're told that when this is happening, a woman approaches Jesus with very expensive ointment, in John's account, we're actually told that the stuff is worth a year's worth of wages. So let's say $45,000. Let's say that this woman approaches Jesus with an ointment, a bottle of ointment, that is worth $45,000. So she approaches Jesus, she uncorks the ointment, 
and pours it onto Jesus' head as they're reclining. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see again and again, characters like King David are anointed for a task. They're set aside by the pouring of ointment or pouring of oil. Or at burials. Corpses are anointed for burial. Maybe even Matthew is intending to bring to mind the gift of the Magi at the beginning of the gospel. Imagine the scene. The woman has been with Jesus. She adores Jesus. She knows who Jesus is. She has seen the amazing things that Jesus has done. And she expresses her adoration for Jesus in this way, by uncorking this bottle of oil, this ointment, $45,000 worth, and dumping it over Jesus' head. She had seen Jesus, been moved by his grace, seen his strength and kindness, and was so overwhelmed with love, she did this. And how did the disciples respond? Yes, you get it. You understand. The disciples see, and they're going to celebrate what this woman has done, this amazing act of sacrifice and worship of Jesus, right? Verse 8. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. They were indignant, saying, why this waste? Why waste this $45,000 worth of ointment? This could have been sold for a large sum and could have been given to the poor, the disciples say. Have you ever bought something and realized you wasted your money? Has that ever happened to you before? I have this thing where I was telling Mike about this, Mike Norris, and I was telling my wife about this. She, she's well aware. I just, I don't like filling my car all the way up because I had this experience one time when I, when I drove a clunker. Most of what I've driven have been clunkers. I've always driven clunkers. But I was driving this one particular clunker, and it was like if I filled up the gas tank, it was going to break down. It was going to break down. And so I felt like if I, if I filled up the gas tank, inevitably the car was going to break down. It's like, I just wasted all that money. And so I'm thinking to myself, driving these clunkers, if I just drive about, if I fill up half a tank and the car breaks down, I don't have access to it, I haven't wasted as much money as I could had I filled up the tank. It's just one of those things, one of those idiosyncrasies you develop in your youth that you never quite grow out of, right? It makes you likable and relatable when you're preaching. So I, I tried to explain to my wife that I, I had this happen one time and she doesn't understand it. But we can all relate that wasting money is the worst. Wasting money is the worst. You buy something that breaks instantly. It's like every toy that you buy for your child breaks within 24 hours of purchasing that toy for that child. So it's pretty reasonable as the disciples see what this woman has done to think, uh, is that the best? With Dave Ramsey, not sure. Ah, it doesn't seem like the best use of this money. Surely we could have done some other things with these finances, the disciples say. It's also worth pointing out that in chapter 25, to complete the last discourse, Jesus is very clear, very clear, that our eternity hangs on our hospitality towards the least of these, right? So again, it seems like a, a very reasonable conclusion to make that the disciples see what this woman is doing and think, ah, I'm not so sure that was the best idea. This is the equivalent of a decent annual income being wasted. Surely, Jesus, you're going to reprimand her for this. But how does Jesus respond? Verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for my burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. 
And we, and we, we wonder why there would have been riots had they taken this guy captive in public. Far from thinking this is a waste, Jesus says, this woman has done a beautiful thing. He explains, the poor, they'll always be with you, but not, but not me. She did right in honoring me in this moment. And she understood something that none of you have understood up to this point. She understands what I am headed to do. She understands that I am the crucified king. She has prepared me and anointed me for my burial. And you guys have yet to connect those dots. She prepares for me my burial. She honors me. She sees me. She understands. And it's beautiful. And you know what Jesus says? Everywhere the story of Jesus is told, her story is going to be told as well. How good is that? The fact that the disciples' boneheadedness is memorialized in this way. And this woman's wasteful adoration of Jesus is celebrated the way that it is. By the way, one, uh, one irony pointed out by one commentator in verse 5, the religious leaders are intent on keeping all of this quiet. Keeping all of this quiet. You know, the story of Jesus. That's probably the most well-known story. The cross, which is pretty the mo- probably the most well-known symbol in, in all of human history, the authorities wanted to keep that quiet. We see how that worked out. But then watch this. Watch, watch what Matthew does immediately after this flashback. We get the flashback to the woman anointing Jesus. Now see what he does in verse 14. He, co- he returns back to the present narrative. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. One of the twelve, one of those who complained, turns out, becomes an insider that the conspiring, plotting chief priests and elders need to snag Jesus. And Judas' name becomes synonymous forever with betrayal. And notice in verse 15, what is the word that he uses that's also present in verse 2? Deliver. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What is Judas's sin here? What's behind his betrayal? Is it resentment? Is it greed? Is it selfish interest? Just as Jesus said, he would indeed be delivered and Judas volunteers to do the delivering. And for what? What will you give me? Judas asked the religious leaders. The answer, 30 pieces of silver. Scholars are divided about what exactly this is, but it's maybe a couple of hundred dollars. Maybe for 400 bucks, Judas is willing to betray Jesus. Now you see what Matthew is doing here in this passage. The woman and the disciples, most specifically the woman and Judas. You see the contrast that Matthew is making here. In these two separate stories and accounts, this question is being asked. It'll be on the screen. What is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth? What is Jesus worth? The Logos, the King of the Jews, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the true light who has come into the world and gives light to all mankind. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. What is Jesus worth? What is he worth? The friend of sinners, the one who welcomes women of the city to anoint him with oil, fully aware of her past, fully aware of her reputation, fully aware of how she had the money to even buy it, and he receives her. 
What is the one who dines with lepers and befriends Romans and is even willing to forgive the angry religious leaders? What is he worth? That's the question that Matthew wants us to ask ourselves here in this passage. What is a crucified king worth? And so here's the question for us tonight. The question for each of us, every soul in this room. What is Jesus worth to you? Not, not what is Jesus worth on paper out there, what your, what your Sunday school taught you to say, what your Bible school training taught you to say. What is Jesus worth to you? On a spectrum of the woman in the city and Judas of Iscariot, where do you fall? What is Jesus worth to you? It's interesting to me that the complaint here that this, that, that's sort of held out against the woman is that she's wasting this ointment on Jesus. It's like you have the disciples who haven't yet figured out who Jesus is and what he has come to do. They haven't yet put it together, and among them is Judas. Elsewhere, Judas is singled out in this story as being particularly peeved by this woman's act. And so you have people who don't yet see the worth of Jesus looking on someone who does and thinking they're a fool for wasting themselves on Jesus. They conclude she is wasting herself. She is wasting her resources. And so as I was reflecting on this passage, I, mean, I couldn't help but ask myself this question. If someone who didn't yet see the worth of Jesus, whose values weren't what I say mine are, if they did a worship audit on my life, if they looked at the way I spend myself, my money, my energy, my time, would they accuse me of wasting myself on Jesus? And if someone were to do the same to you, would they accuse you of wasting yourself on Jesus? Let's, let's take a look at our time and our brain space and our energy and our calendars and our money and let's follow those breadcrumbs and see where they lead. Do you and I really, really see the worth of Jesus? Or are our lives completely and totally indistinguishable from the people who surround us? Something that's been really fun as, as my kids have gotten older is seeing the way that our kids' interests have developed. Interest is probably a mild way to put it. Obsessions have developed. You know, it's Pokemon cards, or it's football cards, or it's Legos for a season, or it's you know, Ninja Turtles, or whatever it might be. It's one of the things that has sort of helped me to understand about myself, about human nature, is that God designed us to be fixating creatures. You know what I mean by that? We're, we're fixating creatures. The way we work is that we set our sights on something, and we are desperate to give ourselves over to that thing. That's true of eight-year-olds and Ninja Turtles. It's true of 34-year-olds and, and whatever else, right? This is the way that God has wired us. I mean, I, I was speaking recently with someone about the enormous amounts of money we spend on things like football tickets and healthy food and the thousands of app subscriptions that are draining our bank account unawares and blah, blah, blah. We are natural-born fixators. We are obsessed with giving ourselves away. We are desperate to cast ourselves onto something or someone. We are going to spend ourselves in some way, somehow. And, and the question for us that, that I think Matthew wants us to consider is, am I going to spend myself on things that lead people to conclude, man, what a waste? Because if not, I'm not sure that we are all that different from the disciples and Judas in this passage. Jesus has a way of upsetting our values and just turning things upside down for us. He's the crucified king. And so what we previously thought was beautiful and life-giving is exposed by Jesus for the sham that it is. 
that the things that we previously had no taste for are shown to be sweeter than honey. We meet Jesus and we see the worth of Jesus and we think, I wanna give myself to him. We see that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We see that life is found in constraining ourselves to Jesus and his people. We see that the path to glory is through humility and service, not fame and grandstanding. We see that the path to joy is often through sorrow and hardships. We see the crucified king standing victorious over your sin, over my sin. We see his grace and his compassion and his mercy and we say, Jesus, take our lives. And we completely orient our our values and our habits and our mind and our heart around Jesus. And for people who don't get it, they look at us and they say, what a waste. What a waste. So much more could have been done with that money and that time and those young lives. What a waste. This is what the Apostle Paul had to say in Philippians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul, a former up-and-coming religious leader, a killer of Christians, meets Jesus and then has this to say about his life before Christ. Paul says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I love this. This is the money portion right here, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I take a survey of my life and all the things that I've done and all the things that I've loved and all the things that I've given myself to. And I've concluded that's where the real waste lies. Because life is found in knowing Christ and being known by him. And I press on to know Christ more because Christ has made me his own. So the question for us is, is what does it look like for us to do the same beautiful thing that the woman in this passage has done? What does that look like for you tomorrow morning? What does it look like for you to waste yourself, to waste yourself on Christ? Many of us are probably familiar with the story of this guy here. This is a picture of Jim Elliot. Anybody familiar with the story of Jim Elliot? Jim Elliot was a Christian missionary, a young man, a 29-year-old man, who committed his life to the mission field. He went to Ecuador to reach uh, an unreached people group, and he was killed by the people that he went to go reach. Jim Elliott's life was taken by these people that he went to go reach. 29 years old. He's young, he's healthy, he's brilliant. So much potential. What a waste. What a waste of a life. Or has this man done a beautiful thing by giving himself away for the sake of Christ? Does the crucified king show us that this death, though tragic, like the woman's sacrifice, is beautiful? Or... Will we, like Judas, sell Christ for a few days' wages and truly waste ourselves on nothing?
Church, let us spend ourselves on Christ. Lord Jesus, may this be true of our church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you because you first came to us. And we love you because you loved us. And we press on to to know you and to attain the resurrection of the dead. We've not yet made it our own, but we press on because you have made us your own. You know us and you love us and you have called us. And you you are showing to us your beauty and your glory and you are creating in us hearts like this woman. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us that same kind of fixation on you. A fixation that finds its, its way in our schedules and our lives and our hearts and our every moment. We thank you for the story that's present here in the scriptures. This model that we have, this, this woman who has, who has done this beautiful thing for you, Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would create that kind of obsession and, and wastefulness in us. And would this church just be filled with people who choose to waste their lives on you? In a way that seems completely senseless and and, and in a way that makes no sense to people who have not seen, who have not understood the beauty of Jesus. Would you make that true of us, Jesus? Would you make that true of me? Would you help the parents in here embody that and, and teach that to their children? Lord Jesus, as I think about the example of Jim Elliott, I, I pray for folks from our body who would, who would be willing to, to, uh, to devote their lives in the, in the way that he did for the sake of your name being made known wherever that might be, Greer to the ends of the earth. I think of the Harrisons who crossed the border into Canada this morning to do exactly that. I pray, Jesus, that you would preserve them and bless their efforts. And for Hannah, who crossed the border this morning with them, pray that you bless their efforts. And we pray, as we prayed last week, that you would raise up more who would also be willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel, to waste themselves for you. Again, Jesus, we thank you that you gave yourself to be delivered up in order that our sin could be forgiven and that we could be gifted eternal life forever and ever and I pray that you would always, always just be restoring the joy of our salvation to us so we would never grow cold to the reality and the fact of the gospel. I pray this in Christ's name.